Hello, and welcome to Skynet Today's Let's Talk AI podcast, where you can hear from AI researchers about what's actually going on with AI and what is just clickbait headlines. I'm Sharon, a third-year PhD student in the machine learning group working with Andrew Ng. I do research on generative models, improving generalization of neural networks, and applying machine learning to tackling the climate crisis. And with me is my co-host. Hi there. I'm Andrei Krenkov, a third-year PhD student at the Stanford Vision and Learning Lab. I focus mostly on learning algorithms for robotic manipulation in my research. And Sharon, I think this week we have a lot of quite varied news stories, so it should be pretty interesting uh, to chat about it all. And we'll just go in and dive straight in with uh, the first one here, which is titled, An Invisible Hand, Patients are, Aren't Being Told About the AI Systems Advising Their Care. And this was from statnews.com. So the short version is, Machines that are completely invisible to patients are increasingly guiding decision-making in the clinic. And this article summarizes how tens of thousands of patients in Minnesota's largest healthcare systems have had discharge planning decisions made with help from an AI model, but they do not know about it, about the AI model. And Apparently, doctors and nurses have made a point about not mentioning to patients because the patients might worry and distrust the AI. And of course, the doctors and nurses don't want that because presumably they do trust these models. The healthcare workers do emphasize that the final decisions uh, made by the humans and the AI is just a tool that helps. But, uh, of course, there are still issues of whether using these decision-making aids uh, counts as research, if it's too exploratory, not developed enough. And uh, it's unclear if the patients deserve to know about it, if they would be worried about it, or if it's okay to not let them know. Uh, I guess, yeah, what's, what's your take, Sharon? It seems like a pretty tricky area. I think it is a very tricky area. It harks back to uh, issues with AI and explainability. So explainability, explainability meaning the AI can kind of explain how it reached its decision and give that to a human such that we can then trust the AI more. And uh, these systems, it sounds like, don't have much of that or don't, don't make that part as transparent. And it's a very difficult problem. Uh, was that you or me? <laughs> Damn it. Okay. And it's a very difficult problem. I would say the other side of this is also uh, over-reliance on AI decision support tools of from, from the user. And the user here is, I would say, the doctor. Uh, and there, this view was somewhat expressed in the article where uh, three patients said they wouldn't want to know if their doctor was being advised by such a tool. Uh, and a fourth patient spoke out forcefully in favor of disclosure. I, I find that quite interesting that uh, they, uh, so, uh, many folks would not want to know if their doctor is actually being advised by a tool like this, that they just don't find that appropriate. Um, but I, I also find it kind of concerning that um, uh, doctors would probably over-rely on a system like this. Uh, I have seen... I have seen that play out in experiments we've run where we have an AI model say something's positive and then the doctor says, you know, I'm, I'm probably slightly more certain that it's positive because I see this AI system saying it's positive. Uh, but I haven't seen it flip a doctor's decision completely. So that is uh, slightly better, but I could see it happening. 
Yeah, I think it, those are a lot of good points. And I think at the current stage of AI development, uh, the justification that the healthcare workers are using that, you know, these uh, the patients might find out about it uh, through news anyway, and bringing it up just has the potential to become an unnecessary distraction and undermine trust in ways that we are trying to avoid. But at the same time, we know that some AI models have uh, biases even deployed in production. Uh, we know that we don't have many tools right now to really understand models well. Um, and in general, I think we've seen that a lot of times there isn't a lot of transparency about how well these models perform, uh, how well they're tested, etc. And this reminds me a lot of uh, discussions we had about, for instance, auditing, where companies would have to publish the metrics of the AI models they're using and how reliable they are and so on to then let people know uh, what they uh, should trust or how worried they should be about the approach this company is using. So in general, I think, as you said, complex topic, but I'm a little skeptical of this decision to not uh, disclose it, uh, it seems like, in any way and just use the AI tools anyway. Right, right. Absolutely. And I imagine there might be a host of reasons for not disclosing it uh, that you know doctors might be concerned about, but I think we need to uh, think about as we, uh, as we shape regulation how to how to maintain that transparency, what kind of disclosure should happen, what kind of disclosure makes sense. Uh, of course, doctors also also withhold uh, some sort of disclosure themselves when they do give, um, when they do apply a diagnosis. And uh, I have seen doctors change their diagnoses when when another doctor is around, for example. You know, like it, it, it is influenced by the environment. So so I, I can imagine that there might be a host of factors there too, but I, I really hope this does play into the discussion of, of regulation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, related to that, an, a common kind of response to the topic of explainability in medicine is that, you know, doctors don't fully explain the rationale for their decision making to patients, right? You're supposed to just kind of trust your doctor as an expert. So in some sense, there's already some uh, opaqueness as to why decisions are being made. But at the same time, I think um, we have these processes of medical school and training and various uh, oaths doctors have to take to presumably train them to act ethically and uh, to inform patients of any necessary information, which is not so much true of AI. So we need to figure out what is a minimum kind of required disclosure? And as you say, that may involve uh, regulation ultimately. And of course, if these systems were absolutely perfect and uh, absolutely better than all doctors, then we should probably trust them, right? So if, if they become that good, uh, then, then we trust them. But of course, they're not at that level yet. Um, and in fact, they may not be, which brings us to our next article uh, from VentureBeat. MIT researchers warn that deep learning is approaching its computational limits. And so the summary here is that historically progress in deep learning has been uh, fairly reliant on advances in computation, so compute. And so newer methods uh, like neural architecture search, uh, NAS, 
are extremely compute hungry uh, and they have a huge environmental impact that is starting to garner attention, especially in the uh, NLP, natural natural language processing space. And so a research team from MIT, um, uh, the MIT IBM Watson AI Lab, Underwood International College, University of Brasilia, all came together and asserted that continued progress will require actually dramatically more efficient deep learning methods. And these are either new methods or more efficient versions of existing methods. You can imagine a distilling model to be smaller um, and making it more efficient. Uh, and the researchers analyzed about a thousand papers from uh, archive to to analyze that connection between uh, deep learning performance and its computation. And when they analyzed these uh, 1,058 papers from uh, archive, which is a uh, which serves a preprint, um, as well as other benchmark sources, um, uh, they found that it takes exponentially more compute to get incremental improvements at this point in time, uh, which is very concerning. Andre, what do you think? Yeah, this is an interesting paper. I think it's it's cool that we are getting more and more of these sort of empirical papers evaluating with many a lot of data, kind of the trends that you're seeing. I think one caveat to be noted here is that uh, some of the examples, for instance, are with very very popular benchmarks. So one of them is the ImageNet Top One Error. And they do show that, you know, they have a graph showing that there is kind of exponentially more compute to get small improvements on the top one error. But then again, the top one error is at this point relatively low and you are maybe saturating to a point where, you know, there's not much higher we can get. So a good caveat to note is that there's a lot of tasks in deep learning that are maybe less explored right now and that require more architectural innovations or conceptual innovations, and that a lot of progress is being made without huge compute. Some examples being, let's say, uh, 3D computer vision is a pretty young area. I think in reinforcement learning, there's a lot of algorithmic work. So it's, I would say this paper is well done for a particular type of research, but that type of research is not all of deep learning and uh, maybe even not the most exciting or interesting part of deep learning. Uh, what do you think, Sharon? I, I think that's true. And also uh, top one error in ImageNet, if you've actually looked through ImageNet images, doesn't always make that much sense uh, because I think the human classification agreement would be uh, potentially worse than what the models are doing now. And it doesn't make much sense if you actually go look at the images. Some of them look like they have multiple classes. Uh, It doesn't even look like the primary class they're tagged as is the actual class that it should be primary. Uh, So like an example would be that I've definitely seen images of lemons with also apples and oranges in there, but it says, no, this is a lemon. So, you know, so top one means uh, its first classification is the correct class. You can't just say that image must be just lemons. It also has oranges and apples. So I would say that that happens quite frequently in ImageNet. So even the benchmark itself uh, might suggest some some issues where calculation is really just trying to squeeze out some kind of overfitting onto that data set, I believe. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think that holds true for all the other uh, examples we have here of uh, deep learning tasks. So we also do things like machine translation and object detection, which are very thoroughly studied problems and data sets. And so to this point, um, when you apply a new architecture, you wouldn't expect, let's say, a huge change. So it makes sense that you need a very drastic change to get uh, relatively small improvements. Um, but it's it's important to be mindful that there's a lot more to research than just improving these particular metrics. And I think we've also discussed before that even just uh, accuracy itself, like performance, is not the only goal for research. We are also researching things like learning of less data, being more computer efficient, all these other things. Uh, so the way you measure progress, right, need not be just with accuracy on these particular benchmarks, which um, I think does lead to this article title of MIT researchers warn that deep learning is approaching its computational limits is a bit is a bit much. I mean, computational limits imply a lot of things, and uh, it's a bit overstating uh, the case. Although in some in some narrow sense, that's true. There was actually another article. Uh, titled Prepare for Artificial Intelligence to Produce uh, Less Wizardry by Wire.com, which is even more misleading, right? Because uh, we are already producing this wizardry quite well, and we are exploring ever more avenues to do interesting things in. So um, yeah, especially that latter article, I would say, uh, not quite what the paper is saying. And you should, you, it's still very exciting what you're doing in, in AI research, I suppose. Right, right. So we definitely need to think through these caveats um, beforehand. And uh, speaking of think through caveats, perhaps even more than think through, our, our next article is from Reuters. German court bans Tesla ad statements related to autonomous driving. So a German court actually banned uh, Tesla from repeating their quote unquote misleading statements about autonomous driving and driver assistant systems, essentially autopilot. So criticism of Tesla's autopilot system has been fairly rampant uh, among consumers. And of course, in Germany, the worry is that these claims actually cause drivers to use much less caution with vehicles. Uh, Elon Musk said this month that Tesla cl is close to quote unquote level five autonomy, which means that it's fully autonomous. Uh, and so that means driving without any need for any passenger input. And that, of course, is fairly far uh, from the truth uh, as it stands now. Uh, I love Elon, but yeah. Uh, what do you think, Andre? I feel like this was this was coming. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> I think this is an interesting case. I think Tesla has been getting a lot of flack actually for a long time for how it's marketed its autopilot and its claims about autonomous driving. Um, and in particular, the courts uh, mentioned that the ads uh, included statements like uh, that uh, the cars have full, full potential for autonomous driving and uh, autopilot inclusive. And that really, I think, does give you the idea that these cars are close to just driving themselves without your input, which uh, disregarding Musk's claims on Twitter is uh, all signs point to still very far from the truth. And uh, Musk has been saying similar things for many years of we'll have full solid driving very soon. So it's, it's, I think it's past time that uh, there was some regulatory 
kind of scrutiny on this misleading claims. It's important for people to not be misled in advertising, for trust to still be there in AI systems. And um, yeah, I think it's it's maybe the first time I've seen this, and I'd be curious to see if this happens more in the future. I agree. And I think false advertising uh, arguably falls under uh, various consumer protection laws. Uh, and I think this definitely concerns safety. Uh, and I had previously thought about this before uh, with a, a friend who's a lawyer um, about this, and he's very, very concerned about this, especially with Tesla. And what's really interesting is that it, this completely makes sense. And it's kind of it's kind of interesting because actually we don't know whose job it is to be regulating this essentially. Like, is it Nietzsche? Is it, is it essentially the, the, uh, the people who are regulating, you know, autonomous driving or is it the consumer protection agencies? Is it, you know, who is it who should be regulating this? And I think that actually makes it very difficult and it's quite refreshing to see Germany actually do this. Um, I think this makes sense. I heard about a story a while back actually, where, uh, someone was driving on the Autobahn and thought their Tesla would, was completely autonomous at the time. This was probably a year or two back and just went to the back seat and took a nap and, uh, well, died from a crash. Um, so because it's not completely autonomous and that's, that's really frightening. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. So, if you look actually, there's a Wikipedia page for fatalities from self-driving cars that exist. And there's a table listing all the currently known kind of historical incidents. And a lot of them, I think a majority of them are Tesla incidents uh, from similar cases. There's been, uh, I think, around half a dozen at this point of various Teslas crashing while their drivers are letting the autopilot drive. So that just compounds this issue of claims being made while there have been these fatalities that uh, actually made the system look pretty questionable in terms of how they got into those accidents. So, yeah, I guess it's good that uh, we are seeing the scrutiny, I suppose. And uh, speaking of things needing scrutiny, uh, we're going to move on to our next article, which is quite intriguing from Reuters and it's titled Defake Used to Attack Activist Couple Shows New Disinformation Frontier. So the short version is there was a fictional person named Oliver Taylor who accused a London academic named Mason Masri and wife of being known terrorist sympathizers. And after there's been some scrutiny, it's been shown that Taylor's photo is a deepfake. And uh, there was actually a whole elaborate fiction about his background. So there was a university that uh, he was associated with that said there was no record. He had a minor online footprint, uh, like being on Quora, but he was not very active there. Uh, two newspapers that published this work of his uh, say that they tried and failed to confirm his identity. And experts in uh, deceptive imagery then used state-of-the-art forensic analysis programs to determine that the profile photo used for these articles was indeed uh, AI-based image. Uh, so basically, what is known as deepfake. So we haven't seen too many uh, cases of really such malicious and sort of, you know, even dramatic uh, uses of deepfake so far. There's been a lot of 
very negative, uh, harmful things with, for instance, uh, deepfake-based porn. But I haven't seen anything kind of this dramatic and direct. And yeah, I find it very interesting. How about you, Sharon? Yeah, I haven't seen something of this nature before. And I think what makes this uh, very concerning is that uh, it's a, it, I mean, it's a form of forgery, but we can't, I guess we can't apply those awful facial recognition algorithms to find who this person is, right? Because they don't exist. Or if we do, we would find someone who, who didn't do it, which is also bad and probably worse. Uh, and yeah, so it does, it does come to show that this is starting to, uh, starting to take hold. And I hope that the authorities use other means to track this person down, whether it be uh, tracking this person's IP address or something. Um, there are just so many ways to spoof everything now. Uh, it's it's kind of frightening. So it's almost like what is real, right? Exactly. Yeah. And um, it seems like this is a growing trend now. Uh, so uh, last week, the publication of the Daily Beast uh, also uh, revealed that there was a network of deepfake journalists like this submitting articles uh, to spread uh, these ideas. And uh, so this seems to be sort of a thing we might have to start contending with uh, on top of all the other problems we have in media and, and you know, figuring out the truth. I guess the good news is uh, this was a relatively minor publication and uh, the article didn't get uh, much engagement. So presumably more kind of well-known uh, publications would not have published something by a deepfake journalist. But still, I think this is quite dramatic. And, um, you know, maybe we'll start seeing kind of essays by people on Medium that are by fake people and so on. And so we'll have to be personally aware that this is a real possibility. And um, I guess uh, be mindful of that. This does make me wonder, you know, what will the... I imagine there would be some kind of new evolution of media now that so much is fake uh, or so much is echo chamber that, you know, what is that next evolution? If if any, I, I do wonder if there's something much better that we could have where the incentives aren't, aren't so so bad that it causes this spiral out of control uh, in, in one direction. And so I wonder what that might be. And um, I, I wonder if we will devolve into almost like the former society of having just villages, right, where we meet up with people. But that, that sounds unlikely too. Uh, given this Zoom world of coronavirus. So I, I'm not sure. Uh, not sure if you have any thoughts, Andre. Yeah, it's a really interesting question of like, given how hard it is to uh, tell apart truth and, and falsehoods and ever increasing disinformation and misinformation, kind of how do we get a handle on all this? And I've seen some different takes uh, that I found interesting. So for instance, I've heard in discussions that media organizations like New York Times and other kind of established reputable sources will start being even more important in the sense that they will kind of provide uh, documentation as to where a particular piece of media came from. They will kind of uh, verify it is legitimate. 
and not a deepfake. And we'll basically need these signatures, these digital signatures on articles, on images, on videos to really know they're real and not deepfaked, not created with AI. So I guess we, the hopeful version is we'll manage to put together a system like that where we have methods of verification and any uh, fake things are caught in the system. Of course, this will limit the ability of people to uh, easily express themselves and put things out there. But at this point, maybe that's a trade-off we need to make. Uh, have you seen any any ideas or approaches or uh, possible features that uh, have resonated with you, Sharon? Like uh, for dealing with defects, I suppose, uh, in terms of how we can make sure it's possible to tell apart false uh, information and facts and uh, yeah, how we get a handle on this big problem. Mm. Uh, I've seen band-aids. Uh, so band-aid solutions for this, which is, you know, having fact checkers and everything, but I'm not sure if that is that exactly solves the situation or, or I mean, it definitely helps, but I think not everyone would believe that either. So, um, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess, yeah, the short version is this is a complicated thing. And, uh, the good news is that there are organizations and teams and smart people thinking about it much more than we are and hopefully coming up with maybe more subtle and nuanced and, possibly effective uh, ideas that uh, hopefully we'll start seeing more of as deepfakes also become more prominent. Right, absolutely. And on the topic of deepfakes, well, generative models, which are deepfakes are generative model for uh, images. Uh, recently, uh, there's been a generative model for text that has been gaining quite a bit of attention, and that is called GPT-3. 3 stands for version. Uh, so an article uh, titled, GPT-3, an AI that's eerily good at writing almost anything. Uh, so GPT-3 uh, recently came out uh, from OpenAI, and folks have been uh, posting about uh, the powers of GPT-3 as well as its limitations. Uh, what have you seen, Andre, and what has caught your eye? Yeah, this was really big on Twitter lately, as you probably know. Um, like many, I was taken aback by this early demonstration uh, that maybe started all this hype recently. Of There was a demo of using GPT to create uh, code for uh, web layouts of websites. So you input kind of like big red button that says blah, 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 and uh, an emoji next to it in English, and it generated for you the HTML and CSS or whatever. And the interesting part here is that GPT-3 wasn't trained to do this. It was trained for the very simple task of predicting what words come next given some amount of previous words. So just kind of autocomplete. And the amazing thing is this autocomplete can be prompted, can be conditioned to do a whole lot of more specific things like producing code if you just give it an example input. So that was one I've seen. Um, some other ones like you can have conversations with various kind of characters. You can say, oh, 
GPT-3, you are Einstein and I'm talking to you and talk to me as if you're Einstein. And it actually does take that role and, and can talk to you like that. Uh, so it's been uh, definitely quite interesting and cool and uh, also very hyped <laughs> for a while. Uh, how about you, Sharon? What have you seen? I've definitely seen that as well. I thought that was pretty cool that JavaScript, uh, HTML, uh, all these languages that we use for programming are in fact languages underneath and they are languages. Like we all know that we call them languages, uh, but GPT-3 really takes that to the next level and says, you're a language and I'm going to produce you like a language. And so that's pretty cool. Um, so seeing, seeing GPT-3 produce templates from natural language is really cool. And I thought the funniest comment I've seen is, uh, and, and this is why I procrastinate on learning how to code. And so I think, I think that's pretty funny. Um, so yeah, that, uh, that is, it's been quite an impressive feat. And I, and I would say that, uh, I think something else that's kind of interesting and funny is that, you know, uh, before we would craft our models, you know, and then neural architecture search came out and it's okay, maybe we don't even have to build we don't even have to design the architecture. We don't have to tune the architecture anymore. And then so instead of tuning architectures, we tune hyperparameters. And then now we don't even have to tune hyperparameters. We really just have to tune the prompt, you know. And that's that's kind of true in a sense where you have to tune the prompt because uh, it's not every time that it produces exactly the output you want uh, in text or another language. Um, and, uh, so you have to maybe try 10 times and one out of 10, it sounds, it sounds good. And I know there's also a new, uh, an article on, uh, that got pretty, that got pretty upvoted on Hacker News about, um, GPT-3 and they reveal halfway through the article that GPT-3 had written that part of that whole article. Uh, but it wasn't revealed until midway through. Um, and it sounded like it was an article that was pretty meta. It was about GPT-3 and its limitations. So it was funny because the comment section, you could tell who had read the article or not, or how far people had read the article uh, based on whether or not they heard the gotcha. Uh, yeah, that was that was quite a funny one. And actually, I wonder, have you, did you read that uh, GPT free generated article? What did you think about it? Not if you fully, did, not fully, but yeah, I was impressed. Yeah, I started reading it, and uh, I, I saw in the comments already that it was generated by GPT free, and uh, it was quite coherent, unlike a lot of previous similar work. So it, it kind of made sense. It wasn't uh, nonsensical until many paragraphs in. Although I would say I was pretty cr critical of its writing uh, skills. It wasn't quite as good as as your traditional good blog post. <laughs> Maybe your blog post standard is too high. <laughs> it could be. It could be. But is it better uh, than a, a high schooler is it better than a elementary school student? I don't know. You know, like we could always, yeah. And and there's also the question of substance. Like, how much substance can it produce in X amount of words? You know, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I think, yeah, this is, has been very cool. Uh, as you said, there are many caveats like its uh, reliability that people have started noting because when you first see these demos, you might be really amazed and think uh, like, you know, full scale AI, human level AI is almost here. But there are many caveats to be aware of. That being said, uh, this actually also makes me think of the thing we just discussed of 
how big compute is leading to uh, diminishing results, where this is a counterpoint, right? GPT-3 conceptually isn't anything new. They just took an existing idea and scaled it up. So they had a giant model with 175 billion parameters, way more than is typical in AI, and they trained it on basically all of the internet to do autocomplete from any kind of bit of text. And it turned out to have this qualitatively different skill than prior models, that it could be prompted to do different tasks with uh, very little, uh, very few examples. So that's something that was, I would say, pretty unexpected, I think, by the community. And it shows that, yes, by some metrics, we get diminishing returns. But in other ways, as you scale up computes, maybe you will get qualitatively different results. And that, of course, definitely matters in research. And I think that's uh, surprising on the one hand and also expected on the other, where uh, in even just if you think human society, uh, when we think of scaling up numbers of people, we think of a team and then an organization and then uh, a city, a nation, and then the world. And so like at each of these scales, we can accomplish different sets of things. Right. And that we think of different types of things. So it, it does, in a sense, kind of make sense that scale at a certain level will turn into something that is qualitatively different. Uh, but we don't know what those thresholds are necessarily in AI. Uh, but here we seem to have crossed one. Exactly. And in that sense, um, OpenAI should be commended for making the investment. This was a very expensive model to train. Yeah. It took a lot of work. And it was a bet of theirs that you would get something qualitatively interesting and not just more of the same. And in this case, it's, it seems to have paid out. And with that, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Skynet Today's Let's Talk AI podcast. You can find the articles we discussed here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at skynettoday.com. And this entire podcast was produced by GBD3. Just kidding. <laughs> if only, you know, we actually had to do the work. Uh, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating if you like the show. Be sure to, Be sure to tune in next week. <laughs>